Welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. So we're in a series called Real Jesus. We are looking at the life, the message, and mission of Jesus and trying to reorient not only our lives, but our church around him <clears throat> as the risen king. And so we started with his message. And I looked at Mark chapter one, verse 15. Over the last four weeks, we looked at the t- Jesus saying, the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. We looked at Jesus being the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament when he says the time has come. That his message primarily throughout the New Testament was about God's kingdom, God's way of life being made available for everyone and anyone. And that repent and believe was not just about turning from sin, and last week we looked at this. Uh, In context, it was uh, join the revolution and become a full participant in this new era, this new way of existence. That God's way of life marked with holiness and purity and healing and justice and peace and love and forgiveness of sins and, and resurrection and the Holy Spirit, that way of life is not only offered to you, but you become part of the story of giving it away. That's what Jesus' message was about. It's for here and now, not just then and there. You with me? That's just a recap. So <clears throat> that was this, this section on his message. And now I thought, why not, why not actually look at some of his teachings together and look at some of these very familiar stories that even if you haven't been to church, you've probably heard these stories before. Why not focus in on some of the stories that you've heard before um, and try to apply some context and history and see if we could apply what Jesus was actually saying, what he really meant back then to our lives today. So that's what we're gonna do the next few weeks as we head uh, to Christmas. Um, we're not doing Advent love, focus on love, peace, joy, and hope. We're gonna actually continue our series, um, but the themes will be pretty centered on this season. Are you guys okay with that? Yeah. Okay, are you sure? Some of you just want like the Christmas sweater ser- sermons. <laughs> that's what I call, that's what I call them, Christmas sweater sermons, and I, I, I just, I'm not into that. I want to do something that gets me excited, and this particular one is quite fascinating. So I thought, let's start this morning with such a familiar story, okay? All of you have heard this story before. All of you know what the meaning is. So I thought, why don't we read this and then see what Jesus was actually saying? So let's read uh, Luke chapter 10. So if you have a Bible, go to Luke chapter 10. We're going to look at, uh, start in verse 30, and let's just read this story and talk about it. So Jesus is telling the story in verse 30 of Luke 10. Every time I say Luke, I get distracted. Anyone else excited for Star Wars, The Force Awakens? Like, can we just... <laughs> like, I'm thinking, do I, do I prepare our church for, like, years of illustrations that come out of The Force Awakens? Like, do I... What do I do to explain how... If you wear a Star Wars shirt, you get extra points in heaven. I'm just saying... If you change your son's name to one of the characters, that's also okay. I'm just kidding. So Luke, here we go, Luke. uh, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and uh, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and he saw the man and passed by on the other side. So too a Levite. When he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. 
went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. So we've all heard the story. And even if you haven't, you have some idea of what's going on here. We've named hospitals Good Samaritan. And for most of us, this is about becoming the kind of of person that stops for the person in need. You're driving down the road and you see someone that needs to change their tire and this story runs through your head, does it not? Am I right? You think, oh, I gotta be the kind of person that helps the person in trouble. That the neighbor in the story is anyone who has need. And the truth is, we could make this parable about that, which we've done over time. Um, and, And that's a great story. That's a great narrative to live by. Imagine if we become the kinds of people that love those in need. If we become the kinds of people that stop, that go overwhelmingly out of our way to care for those in need. And most of us, that would be uh, an incredible way to end this sermon. Let's just stop there. Go and do likewise. That's what we've heard. But brothers and sisters, if you read the story that way, you're missing what Jesus is saying. That's not the moral of the story. And for many of us, we think it's about becoming those kinds of people. But I just, I'm here to tell you that we've misnamed those hospitals. The point of the Good Samaritan is not to become the kind of person that cares for the person in need. It's far more offensive than that. Jesus is doing something very intentional, very disruptive. And if you were around in the first century, if you were the person asking the question, like the lawyer, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You would be offended. So what is Jesus saying in the parable. What does it really mean? And how might we live here now in response to this great narrative? Are you with me? So, Jesus responds to a question from a lawyer when he gives this story. And the question from this lawyer is, how do I inherit eternal life? And a couple of things you need to know about the lawyer and the question. First of all, the lawyer already had an opinion about the question he was asking. He already had a perspective. He already had an opinion. The second thing you need to know is that he was a lawyer. Ta-da, that was good news. Um, That was just brilliant observation. He was a lawyer, but what that meant is that he was an expert in the law. He was trained. He studied for years and spent hours of his days in life studying the scriptures, knowing what the scriptures taught about life. And he would have spent days debating the Torah, debating the scriptures, debating the various interpretations. He was a religious elite and he was part of the religious establishment. When the lawyer asks the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He wasn't asking the question, what happens after I die? He wasn't asking to discuss what takes place after this life and the next life happens. In the first century during Jesus' day, you weren't concerned about that. Jewish communities didn't discuss that. That wasn't part of their mindset at all. It was, they, they were obviously going to be with God as the covenant people of the Old Testament. That God chose them. What they were asking was how do you live life here and now? To ask a religious leader 
if you were going to interact with a rabbi or a spiritual leader or a teacher in the first century, you would ask them the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's an essential way of saying, essentially, um, how do I live the fullest life here and now? How do I have meaning and purpose to life that is full and good and beautiful here and now? And every spiritual leader and rabbi and teacher would have a various kind of tone or view or perspective on that question. And so that's what he's asking. Eternal life what is it? wasn't about where you go when you die. It was about a certain kind of quality in life that came when you had right relationship with God. It was a certain kind of quality in life that you experienced when you lived in harmony, when you lived in shalom and peace with God the way it was intended to be. And so in Luke chapter 10, Jesus is asked, how do I inherit eternal life? which is saying, how do I really live the life that I'm supposed to live, the life that is full? And he responds in verse 26. Look at what he says. He says this. What is written in the law? He replied. And how do you read it? So the lawyer, the expert in the law, the guy who studied the scriptures comes to Jesus and, and he, has, he has a perspective on the question and he asks the common question that you would ask any spiritual leader and Jesus responds like a true rabbi with another question. And what you need to know is that's so rabbinic and it's so Jesus. I just wanna make a quick point on that um, for all of you searching for answers. Jesus is asked 183 questions in the gospels, the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 183 questions. He himself answers only three of those questions directly. And Jesus himself asks 307 questions. So I say Jesus is the question to all of your answers. And so that's what you need to know about the rabbi. Think about that for a second. Uh, Jesus responds in a way that would have been totally first century. It would have totally made sense. The, the way he responds is with a question, but directing it to the scriptures. What do the scriptures teach? Because in the first century mindset, the scriptures taught you about life. They were the source of meaning and life. This is where you would find all that is good and beautiful in this world because God designed it that way. And so the lawyer isn't surprised by the question about what does the law say and how do you read it? Um, he, he was ready to answer that question. He was ready to come with his answer. But before we go to his answer, let me just give you some context because this helps understand, this helps frame what Jesus is doing. So 50 years before Jesus was around debating these things with other teachers and before this takes place, there were famous rabbis that recorded their debates openly in Judaism. Uh, there was a guy named Rabbi Shammai and there was a guy named Rabbi Hillel, okay? And these guys debated all sorts of rules and laws and the commandments. They had different interpretations. To be Jewish is to debate. You just need to know that. Um, it's very common to have just public discourse because it's actually really cool. You, you have different perspectives and you learn from one another. And, and these rabbis would have open debates and, and there were eight recorded kind of debate, great debates between these rabbis that you find in the gospels. So around the time of Jesus, the most popular rabbis, Shammai and Hillel, were known for various perspectives on the law. Remember the law, there were 613 commandments in the Old Testament. And the law is, you know, the first five books, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, for those keeping track. So these, um, these laws were ranked by the rabbis like we rank college football teams. 
Ohio State fans, USC fans in here? Okay, no. USC? We're not really sports fans, are we? What are we? We're not like, we're a few, UCLA? Ha, Oklahoma, oh yeah. All right. It's so weird. I'm like, what do you guys, some of you like Star Wars, but the rest of you are indifferent. Some of you like sports, but the rest of you are, are like, are you guys fans of Dance Dance Revolution? No, you're not fans. <clears throat> I was going to say I injured myself performing DDR, Dance Dance Revolution at an arcade. True story. I did on Friday go bowling and there was an arcade and I was like, I want to fi- find Dance Dance Revolution. I got to see it and take a picture. I just want to go. I know for a fact that what I'm about to say is true. I talk about those kinds of people sweating playing Dance Dance Revolution, not even looking at the screen. And sure enough, there is a lady there drenched in sweat, just like bent over, pushing the button, ready for round 17 or something in Dance Dance Revolution. And if you missed last week, you got you to gotta see the dance moves. Anyways, um, it's recorded. So Rabbi Shammai... And Rabbi Hillel, where were we? Um, they debated openly, and th- there were rec- eight different recordings. And seven of the eight recorded, Jesus sides with Hillel, not with Shammai. Um, but the greatest question outside of eternal life they had was, what was the greatest commandment? And, and everyone, everyone in the first century knew what the greatest commandment was. The, f- the first great commandment was found in Deuteronomy 6.4, Love the Lord your God, or excuse me, uh, hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then the next one is love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. But the second commandment was debated. Shammai said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second greatest commandment was be holy as God is holy. Be holy as God is holy. Leviticus. Hillel 50 years before Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. So this was an ancient rabbinic debate and Jesus sides with halal. And and that comes with all sorts of religious perspective because the Pharisees, they lived out a be holy as God is holy. It was about holiness. It was about cleanliness. It was about all sorts of ways of religion. And even love your neighbor as yourself, that was widely debated as far as what it meant to apply that to your life, which we'll see. But look at what Jesus says. So he asks the question, what is written? How do you read it? And he responds, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, which is, comes from a Hebrew word, which means all of your muchness, it's so, all of the atoms and quarks, the very essence of what makes you a, a cellular human and being, love God with all of that stuff and with all of your mind. And then he says, halal, love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus answers and he says, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. You will experience the life that God intended you to have. You will experience meaning and purpose, the muchness, the, uh, excuse me, the greatness of life. And so Jesus answers his question. The exchange is done. Nothing more to talk about. It's finished. The lawyer asks a question. Jesus asks him a question about his question. Then the lawyer answers the question about his question. And Jesus says, you got it right. Conversation over. It's finished. But it wasn't over. We haven't got to the Good Samaritan yet. Apparently there's something else. And it says in Luke 29, 1029, he wanted to justify himself. This is where we see what's going on. He wanted to justify himself. So we ask Jesus, who is my neighbor? And brothers and sisters, this is where we all relate to Jesus. We come to Jesus with our own agenda. 
We're seeking honest answer. We're seeking an honest answer from him. But we have already made up our mind about what it means for us. Am I right? So this guy comes wanting to prove himself right. In other words, he fundamentally disagrees with the, the interpretation of what it means to love your neighbor. He has a different perspective than Jesus. He has, he's trying to trick Jesus. This was the point of the question. He's a, an expert in the law. He's trying to see, he's trying to catch Jesus as all the religious leaders did during Jesus' time. They try to catch him so that they could end his subversive teaching on what life with God really looks like because what happens over time, especially in religious systems, is you develop a perspective in a religious system that there are some people that are in and there are those that are outside of that in. Am I right? And so in the first century, a neighbor was somebody that looked like you, that dressed like you, that talked like you, that had similar political, religious, and spiritual beliefs, that had similar lifestyles, as you and morals as you and anyone else was not a neighbor. So the resources of your love were only extended to the ones that were considered your neighbor. You with me? A Pharisee, the Pharisees in the first century didn't even say that just Jews that looked and dressed and talked like you. They actually went even further and said, those that are practicing Judaism perfectly. Those that are, are living out of the laws perfectly. So if you missed the law, if you were, if you messed up and worked on the Sabbath, if you did anything wrong, you were not considered a neighbor, even if you were Jewish. The resources of someone's love and what it meant to fulfill the life that God intended you to live was withheld from those people on the outside and only held for the proper Jewish community. Those kinds of people are left out and these kinds of people are in. And we do this all the time. And I think the byproduct of religion is, is you wanna live by a rule. And if you live by a rule, you'll, you'll end up living a spiritual checklist out. And we do this all the time. It's so, it's so, it's so subversive. So we, we, will, we will feel better about our place in standing with God when we wake up and have a devotional life, don't we? oh, God's more pleased with me because today I read his word. Do you know that that view of God is heresy? I mean, it's not heresy. It's just a completely distorted image of God that's made in your own image, not the image that Jesus revealed. So it's an idol. That if you think that your place in standing with God has anything to do with what you're able to do, then you're worshiping the, a wrong God. But that's what we do with religion. We create, a, 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 we create lists of what it means to be this perfect person. We create lists of, of what it means to fulfill. And we want the list because it's easier to live by a list and learn to love in a way like God. I do this in my marriage all the time. My wife wants a clean house. I clean the house. She'll walk into the house. Did you clean? Of course. Did you vacuum? Yeah, she has a different understanding of what cleanliness looks like in our home. <laughs> and after years of fighting, after I cleaned, I just gave up and I said, just give me a list. Just give me the list. What do I have to do? Rather than learning how to see the home the way she sees it in a way of honoring and blessing her, I just want the list. It's, yeah. 
pretty crappy. So we do this. We want to justify ourselves. What are the spiritual exercises that makes me feel better about myself? Who really is and where do the resources of, of my love go? What's the bottom line? Who's my neighbor? And then Jesus goes into the story. Okay, so Jesus is asked a question. How do I, inter- how do I inherit eternal life? He asks a question about it. And the guy answers right. Love your neighbor as yourself. So he does the first one, love your neighbor as yourself. And then he wants to justify himself and says, who's my neighbor? And then Jesus runs into this story, the Good Samaritan. Let's read this story and I'll apply some context and see if we could see what he's doing here. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A few things. First of all, it was a very common passage Uh, from Jerusalem to Jericho. It was a 2,600 foot descent from Jerusalem, 1,300 feet above, excuse me, it was a 3,300, 3,600 foot descent. (laughs) I have a fractured foot, okay? Just give me a break. (laughs) Gosh, it's so hard on me, man. And uh, it's 2,300 feet above sea level. Jericho's 1,300 feet below sea level. And it was a 70-mile treacherous walk that was known for robberies. It would be like going to Skid Row in the middle of the night when your tire breaks down. I mean, it just would have been expected. The story is common. That's all I'm saying. And it says that the man was stripped of his clothes. He was beaten up, so he's probably bleeding. He's left half dead or corpse-like is one um, one translation actually is. So, so what you need to know about this is from that reading alone, how would you recognize who this guy is? If in the first century, the, the neighbor is someone that looks like you, dresses like you, talks, has a similar accent as you, how would you identify this dude? You can't identify him. Okay, so you just, that's, that's helpful because you, you don't know where he's come from. You don't know his moral standing. You don't know if he's a Jew or not. You don't know, and if he's bleeding, that's a danger in itself. We'll get to it in a second. And then it says this, and I love this part of the story because we just, we, we cast these people as the bad guys. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. What's funny about that is there wasn't a, an, another side. So Jesus, Jesus is being funny. There wasn't another, there was a cliff on the other side. That's, okay, that's funny. So first century. Gosh, man. I'm just gonna preach at the 915 and let Bill have you guys. Just kidding. So too, the Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed on the other side. So we know this part of the story. The priest was part of the Jewish nobility. They worked two weeks on in the temple and two weeks off. Jericho would have been his home, the most populated city outside of Jerusalem. You have a man who is paid to perform worship ceremonies, to lead the people of Israel towards holiness, to lead their spirituality. His spirituality, he's the leader of of the spiritual people in Israel. He is literally sacrificing day and night for two weeks and he's on his way home to take a break and he sees this man and he passes on the other side. That's the priest. Then the Levite comes 
who would be like the, 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 the janitors of the temple service. They would serve a couple times a year. They would perform like the, 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 the administrative assistance to the priests, okay? They weren't noble. They were probably poor or middle class. They didn't have the nobility that the priests had. But they too were performing spiritual activities regularly as they worked in the temple. They were performing worship songs. They were, they were doing the things that needed to get done so the people of God could worship Yahweh. And they, he passes on the other side. And so immediately we think that's the bad guy, right? The priest is the bad guy. The Levite, they're the bad guys in the story. There's a man who's bloody on the road. He's been beaten up. That's what the story says. But in a first century context, you would say, no, they're fulfilling the commandments of God. They're being true to what the scriptures say. Be holy as God is holy. You can't recognize if this guy's a, a neighbor or not. You don't know and you're at, you are at risk being unholy and marked unclean if you touch someone else's blood. Some rabbis said that if your shadow passes over a corpse, it says corpse-like, you would be marked as unclean and unholy, meaning you would go back to the temple, you would sit outside for seven days, you would go through ceremonial cleansing, you would be mocked and shamed, and you wouldn't be useful for your task as worship leaders in the economy of God in Israel. That's what is going on in the story. You with me? So, the story is about how do you live the life that is really life? How do you experience all that life has? How do you receive what God had intended you to live with in the first place, the fullness of God's, God's life? And the clarifying question was, well, then who's my neighbor? Where do the resources of my love go? And who's in and who's out? And the Torah teaches that if you touch someone else's body, you'd be marked as unclean. If you're doing the holy stuff for God, then you gotta keep yourself pure for his sake. You don't defy yourself. You don't become unclean. And the moral of the story really at some level could be, how do you interpret the scriptures? What does the scripture say? But that's not the moral of the story. The story continues, and this is where the story gets really interesting and really offensive, because in a natural progression, what would make sense for Jesus to say is then a Jewish layperson came around and tended to the need. It would completely make sense. In the progression, you got the, you got the priest and then the Levite, and then you just have the Jewish common layperson that doesn't have nobility or doesn't have a task in the temple. He comes around, but what's said is verse 33. And what is so shocking is that I would be convinced that the lawyer doesn't even hear the rest of the parable because of the word that's used in verse 30. It says, verse 33, but a Samaritan, a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. He gets bloody. He is marked unclean. He uses oil and wine, which were sacraments in the temple used for holiness in God and now used for the tending of wounds. He put him on, on his own donkey, meaning he walked next to the donkey, put this guy in his place. And in first century context, he's trading places with the half-dead man, saying that who walks next to, to the beast is the servant to the one on, on top of the beast. That's a rabbinic teaching. So your status, he, he trades places with his status, gives it to this guy, and he took care of him, brought him to an inn, and the next day he gave him two denarii and gave it to the innkeeper. Look after him. 
When I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. And this is so offensive in the first century. It would have been so unbelievably unable to be heard by this law-abiding Jew. If you would have heard the story as a lawyer, if you would have heard the word Samaritan, you would have been stopped. You would have been confronted. It would have been abrupt. It would have been offensive. But if the moral of the story that we take is to become the kind of person that takes care of somebody in need, then this is great. The resources of your love go to anyone that have need. Go and do likewise. Be a good Samaritan. That's, that makes sense, but that is not the point. The point is the Samaritan was hated by the Jews. The point is in the, the story of the Jews is that they had a long beef rooted in history when the Assyrians came and conquered northern Israel and exported and exiled the Jewish community to back to Babylon. They, some of them stayed there and mixed married with some of the Jews and becoming Assyrian and Jewish, they, they created the Samaritan race and they, they mixed their religions together and worshiped other gods other than Yahweh. They were hated. At one point in history, there was a civil battle between the Samaritans and the Jews. Uh, they would fight each other. It was ethnic cleansing going on. There's all sorts of hatred that was rooted in history. It was rightfully so. They were immoral. They were pagans. They were heretics. They were the worst kinds of sinners. It was rooted in hate that was similar to that of genocide. And so when the Jews hear this word Samaritan, they think of all this religious ideological opposition. Think modern day racism. Think the worst type of immorality. When Jesus is insulted in John chapter 8, verse 48, check this out. They're trying to, they're trying to slander Jesus' ministry and one of them says this, aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? Because those two go together. The worst thing you can call a religious Jew was a Samaritan. In our context, the story would be like me sharing a story of the good ISIS terrorist pedophile who kicks puppies. It is that offensive. It is that startling. And when you don't have that context, you miss the moral of the story. You miss the progression. Yes, uh, look at the love that he has. He's, the Samaritan sees this man. He takes pity on him. He has compassion, meaning he, he's moved to do something. It's I have to do something rather than I have to go do something. You know the difference? I've got to do something versus what do I have to go do? And then he bandages his wounds. He touches them. He becomes unclean. He puts them on his donkey. He takes him to the inn. It's a love. If we focus on that, it's amazing. And we should. We should have a love that, that goes all out for those in need, that cares for them, that, that follows through, that takes commitment, time, energy, finances, and resources. A love that shares the burden and goes out of the way. And, and if, imagine if you had that love today. Imagine if everyone you met, every day you lived, and everywhere you went, you carried that love with you. That would be enough. But that's not the moral of the story. And this is where, brothers and sisters, as we, as we head into Christmas and this holiday season, this is where we need to focus the story on what Jesus meant. The Samaritan is the one that helps the guy out and the lawyer hated Samaritans. The story is impossible for the lawyer to hear because there's no such, th such thing as a good Samaritan. You wouldn't be able to say Samaritan without disgust. How do you inherit eternal life? How do you how do you live the life that is really life? Where do the resources of your love go? 
Jesus says in verse 36, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of the robber? And the expert of the law listened to his response. The one who had mercy on him. Jesus says, go and do likewise. Boom. (laughs) This is insane. Do you see how insane, how brilliant and clever and subversive Jesus is. Please tell me you see this because the whole thing started with a lawyer asking Jesus a loaded question. And so what does Jesus do? He tells a story that appears to ramble off into the woods and a shocking character ends up in the story becoming the hero and Jesus turns the table on the lawyer and asks who was the neighbor? And the answer of course is the Samaritan. But the lawyer couldn't even use the word Samaritan. The lawyer couldn't even name the person in the story. What does that mean? The moral of the story is, we don't get to choose who's in and who's out. We don't get to choose where the resources of our love goes because everyone deserves it. The moral of the story is, When you follow Jesus, you don't have any enemies. I want you to think for a second. As followers of Jesus, you don't have the luxury of having grudges, of holding unforgiveness. You don't have the luxury of defining your life by who's in and who's out. If God's love goes to the margins, then the followers of Jesus' love goes to the margins the one you wish that didn't exist, the one you wish would just go to hell, the one you wished bad things would happen because they rightfully hurt you, justifiably harmed you, or unjustifiably. The moral of the story is the loving hero in the parable is someone the teacher, teacher or the lawyer hated. The Good Samaritan is about including your enemies in the love that you have for God's people. When the world and religion wants to define who's in and out and who gets the resources of your love and they want to say it's those that look like you, talk like you, dress like you, believe the same beliefs, practice the same lifestyles that you have, have the same morality that you have, Jesus says, no, 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 my love has no boundaries. My love has no exceptions. My love extends to everyone and eternal life, the life that is real is found when you learn the way of forgiveness. He identifies with the lawyer something that is, he's missing in order for him to experience what God desires for him. Brothers and sisters, we just got out of Thanksgiving. And for some of you, it's awesome. For some of you, this is a challenging time. This season is a time that's marked by a reminder of all the pain you've inherited in life, all the loss of relationships, all the burdens you've carried from family members who were supposed to love you that didn't love you, friends that were supposed to love you that didn't love you, people that are no longer here that were once a part of your life. This is a season where all that stuff also bubbles up in the midst of joy and hope and love. And I wonder if maybe what's next for our church is we learn to forgive the people that have hurt us the most. I wonder if on the other side of this life that we're designed to live here now, that if there's something about learning to forgive the people that you have justifiably hated. 
who are your enemies? It's easy for some of us to name enemies like ISIS, yes, or Syrian refugees. What about the ex, that former church? What about God and that he didn't protect you from experiencing that one thing or the loved one that suffered and you just wish that he would be the God that you've come to know and where is he in the midst? What if it's about forgiving that image of God? What if it's about for you naming the people in your life that, has ca- that have caused so much pain, so much resentment, so much anger and rightfully so? What if, what if this story, the moral of the story is about learning how to release them and learn to inherit eternal life? That's what the story is about. It's about naming your enemies and loving them and forgiving them And when you release them, the real person that's released is yourself. Because if you want to experience the life that God has for you, you have to learn to forgive. Some of you have grudges. Some of you have grudges with people in here or or at the other service. What does it look like for you to extend forgiveness? I had a guy come up to me who left our church three years ago in the first service, came back. No joke. He's there and he comes up to me and says, you hurt me three years ago. I left the church because you said this thing and it hurt me. Three years ago. And he told me what happened. I, don't, I have no idea I did this thing. And I just said, I'm so sorry. Will you forgive me? And he just starts crying. Yes, I forgive you. We hug. It's like, how does that happen? But we do it every day, don't we? So I think this morning is about liberation. I think it's about being set free. I think it's about identifying the pain in your life, the anger, the unforgiveness, and the offense that you've had over time with people. And, like, and, and becoming the kind of person, unlike the lawyer, who can name the people. Because when you name the pain, name the people that cause the pain, you humanize them. And then in that, you're able to release them. And I, I know it seems so weird, but On the other side of forgiveness is a whole new life because your world has become small when you hold grudges. I think some of you aren't able to hear God's voice in your life because you're offended and you're holding on to unforgiveness. I think some healing will take place emotionally, physically, when you learn to let go and forgive. I don't know the spiritual realities. I can't speak to all of that, but I see it time and time again. And we had such a sweet, intimate time of ministry this morning at the 915 when people came forward with their, their list of people they need to forgive. Some people, um, I'll, I'll share this with you, some of you, you know who the person is and you have to go and call them as a response to the sermon and get outside, get on the phone, ask for forgiveness or be willing to in, initiate a, a season of reconciliation because that's what Jesus comes to do. His love includes those people in your life. So, um, let me just say as a, a dis- disclaimer I have here, some people are toxic and dangerous and hurtful and they have done so much damage in our life and so we keep our distance from them and we have healthy boundaries and we can't avoid them but, uh, and to love them, we can love them from a distance but that's all the part of being healthy but even then, when we forgive those people, um, we forgive so that the hate and bitterness won't eat us alive. 
So I'm not saying go and enter into toxic relationships again. I am saying learn to release those people in your own life. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.